0: Alright, Romans chapter eight. Romans chapter eight. We are studying what in Romans chapter eight? The Bible. Oh, the Bible. Very good. Six words, right? And what are those six words? Foreknowledge? Predestination? Called or calling? Justified. Glorified. And elect. Okay, I, I end up with five. But okay, okay. there's six. I'm, I'm not counting correctly. Okay, those are, are the six. Now, I want to make it very clear. These words create lots of drama, division, fighting, and debating within Christianity. Everybody can say amen to that, right? Okay, now, I want to make it... This is so important to understand. I want to make sure everybody gets this down if you don't get anything else. To me, what ends the debate... To me, what what should just end all the arguing is the fact that these six words are linked together like a chain. If they weren't linked together, I, I I would be more open to people's arguments, right? Like if foreknowledge was used over here, right, separate from predestination, okay. But when you read the way they are outlined, in order, connected, you can't separate them. Does that make sense? You can't say, well, hey, foreknowledge just means he foreknows what you're going to do. Well, okay, maybe you can make that argument, but when it's connected to predestination, you're finished, right? Because if he just foreknows it and that's all he did, he wouldn't have to predestine anything. Because to predestine someone is to, or to something or someone is to predetermine it beforehand. That's more than knowing, right? So if all he did is know something... Then he wouldn't predestinate. But once he predestinates, that's taking the knowledge of the person and then predetermining something in regards to that person. Does everybody understand? Like, all the arguments fall apart. If Romans 8 didn't exist, a lot of the arguments that Christians make, I would be more than willing to accept their arguments. But when I get to Romans 8, they're linked together. So those he foreknows, he does what? He predestines. Those he predestines, what does he do? He calls. Those he calls, he justifies. Stop right there. Does he justify everyone? No. If he doesn't justify everyone, then he doesn't call everyone. Now, obviously in a calling that leads to the justification, right? And if he doesn't justify everyone, then does he predestinate everyone? Well, not because everyone predestinated is, is called and it's justified. You see how it, it works? Once you link them together, the debate's over. I just want to make sure you understand that, okay? So anytime someone starts, if anytime you have this theological discussion about this, make sure you say, wait a minute, you're arguing like they're not linked together. They're linked together, you're trying to break the link. You can't do that. Does everybody understand that? It's written. I like, there's some doctrinal disputes I can understand the other side, right? I'm like, okay, you're, you've got a good point. Here, it's not my fault that Paul linked it together. Like when people get mad at you, say, don't blame me. Blame the Holy Spirit who inspired Paul to put these six words in a chain. <laughs> okay, okay. Like they're linked. There's no way to separate it. And it's maddening to to argue with someone about it. It's like going in circles. And it's just, at some point, you just want to say, you know what, forget it. I just give up. Because I've had these, I mean, again, when I argued with this, the first Bible Institute I went to, it was just maddening, just sitting there going, what do you people not understand? The words are linked together. Those he foreknows, he predestines. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, those he justified. And it's amazing that everyone loves to keep justification and glorification linked together. <laughs> isn't that amazing, right? Hey, if I'm justified, I'm gonna be glorified. Everyone likes to keep that link, but they wanna separate the links that come before it. But you know what? You know how you get to the, you know what leads to the assurance of Glorification. Think about this logically. What leads to the assurance of glorification? The assurance of justification. What leads to the assurance of justification? The assurance of a calling. What's the assurance of a calling based off? Predestination. So in other words, really, if you're going to believe in the eternal security of the believer, what's What's required? Believing and foreknowing and predestinating and all of those other things. Do you see how they're all linked together? All right. So I just want to, I'm going to keep stressing that every week until we're done. But we're looking at what word? What word are we at now? We're at the last one, right? Which is election. All right. And we are using Grudem's systematic theology. Correct. And this chapter is entitled what? Election. And what's the other word? Reprobation. Okay, I want to make sure everyone has that word down. Election and reprobation. We're going to have to, because it's going to lead into a lot of discussions. What is the first thing we covered? Well, the first thing we've covered here is the ordo salutis, or order of salvation, correct? And what was the order we gave everyone? All right, hey, good job. I'll say it for anyone listening online. Election, calling, right? We called it the gospel call, remember? Regeneration, conversion, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, death, and glorification. And just remember the call. we Actually, it requires both the general call and the gospel call. Yeah, it requires both. All right, so just remember we had a big discussion about that. Okay. Um, And then remember what Grudem said, just for everyone to have this down. We should note here that items two through six and part of seven are all involved in becoming a Christian. Number seven and eight work themselves out in this life. Number nine occurs at the end of life. And number 10 occurs when Christ returns. Everybody remember that? Everybody got that? Okay, all right. Now, here we go. I'm going I'm to just pick up where he does and we're going to go through this. We begin our discussion of the order of salvation with the first element. And what's the first element in Grudem's order? Election. All right. Um, in connection with this, we will also discuss at the end of the chapter the question of reprobation. The decision of God to pass over those who will not be saved and to punish them for their sins. So he defines reprobation as what? Reprobation is defined as the decision of God to pass over those who will not be saved and to punish them for their sins. Everybody got that? So what's reprobation? The decision of God to pass over those who will not be saved and to punish them for their sins. As will be explained below, election and reprobation are different and several important aspects, and it is important to distinguish these so that we do not think wrongly about God or his activity. So according to Grudem, we have to draw a distinction between what two things? Election and reprobation, because they are different and very important aspects. Okay, everybody got that? All right, amen? Okay, good. I'll make sure that that nobody needs me to repeat anything. All right, if anyone sends you a note on the computer saying that they need me to repeat it, I will repeat it. All right, the term predestination is also frequently used in this discussion, in this textbook, and in Reformed theology Generally, predestination is a broader term and includes the two aspects of election for believers and reprobation for unbelievers. So in some theology, predestination includes what two aspects of election? The election for believers and reprobation for unbelievers. So far so good? All right, let me read this again. Predestination is a broader term that includes two aspects of election. That is election for believers and reprobation for unbelievers. Or you could say election, okay, well, just say election for believers and reprobation for unbelievers. We'll just state it that way. I was gonna, I was gonna try to do something else with it, but that will lead to confusion, so I will not. Everybody got that? Now, I want you to write down this word, and I want you to circle it. Double predestination. Double predestination. Has has anybody heard that term? Okay? At least one person. Everyone here should have, because we've discussed it. Double predestination. What do you think double predestination seems to infer or imply? What's, what's implied or inferred with the idea of double in, in, uh, predestination? Do I? Okay, there's two of them. That's very good. All right, that's, that's, that's pretty good, All right? All right, so two, how, if there's two predestinations, how does this typically work? Okay, well, double predestination basically says God predestines those who are saved and predestines those who are damned. All right. We don't philologically we I don't believe we should use the term double predestination because it carries it gives the idea that God is using the same activity in both the election to salvation and the reprobation to unbelievers. And what Grudem wants to show you is that there's, we need to distinguish the activity here because it's not the same. Double predestination seems to say that the activity is the same. Election and reprobation gives the idea that the activity is not the same. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, okay. Well, when we get there, I think it will make sense. Okay, all right, you don't see. Okay, that's good. But well, hopefully, I don't want to get into the nuance now. But hopefully, I'll be able to get into the nuance at a later time. All right. So, some uses the term double predestination to refer to what? Predestination to salvation and predestination to damnation. Grudem is offering to, not to use the term double predestination. He's using two words: election and reprobation. Because he says that, that we need to distinguish the activity here, right? You like what predestination and cover uh, covers both aspects of election, uh, election and reprobation. So election and reprobation, but he still wants to separate those two, and you'll see why. Because double predestination really creates a lot of problems in people's minds, and I think there's a reason why we need to draw that distinction, and you'll you'll see why in a minute. All right, some of you may already know the reason why, but we'll see. All right, so let's go through this again. The term predestination is frequently used in a discussion about this subject in the in Grudem systematic theology and in Reformed theology. If you if you read a Reformed systematic theology. Generally, predestination is a broad term that includes two aspects. Election for believers and reprobation for unbelievers. Everybody got that? However, the term double predestination is not helpful because it gives the impression that both election and reprobation are carried out the same way by God and have no essential differences between them which is certainly not true. Therefore, the term double predestination is not typically used by Reformed theologians, though it is sometimes used to refer to Reformed teaching by those who criticize it. Typically, double predestination is used by people criticizing Reformed theology, not by people who believe in Reformed theology. So if you ever hear someone accuse a Reformed theology, even if you don't hold a Reformed theology and say, oh, they believe in that double predestination, stop them right there because they, they are assigning that term. Don't ever assign a term to a theology that they don't use of themselves. When you're criticizing a theology, what term should you use? Their language right behind Joel. I think to his right or to his left, there is a, the Satanic Bible sitting there, okay? Yeah, I know. Yeah, people online are like, what? Right, yeah, it's right there. If I'm going to talk about Satanism, how should I define it? Okay, I should define it right here, right? Okay. No, no, Well, it's missing a cover because it's falling Oh, no, no, the Satanic Bible is small. You can read that in 30 minutes. Okay. So, uh, but yeah, so if I'm going to talk about because so many times, someone will say, Satanist this, Satanist that. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You don't even know what you're Could you do? Which Satanists believe that? Well, it's a you know, Satanist you saw in a movie. Okay. That, that's where you're getting it from. Okay. Stop. Same when, when people talk about Catholicism or Jehovah's Witnesses or anything. else, We got to try to use their terminology. Why do we want to use their terminology? Why do we want to use their terminology? To be fair, to be right, right? You want to look. You want to be fair, even to an enemy, to a theological enemy. You want to be fair. You want to be right. That this has been the issue throughout church history especially in modern-day Christianity, we just seem that we can just throw out any idea and any theory and we don't have to be right, we don't have to be truthful, we don't have to be honest. Truthfulness, honesty, and integrity should be an integral part of Christianity. And when you're having theological differences, you need to stop and go, hmm, okay, what are you saying? And once once they say it, then how do you respond? You respond to what they said, not don't respond to what you think you want to imply that they're saying right you gotta let them flesh it out so if someone comes to you believe in that double predestination reform people I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone reform ever use that term other than to say we don't use that term okay? because there is a difference and there's a reason alright does that make sense alright so just and I just it's, we've got to do that for anyone and everyone we have to do, to do that alright All right, Um, so double predestination is not generally used by Reformed theologians, though it is sometimes used to refer to Reformed teaching by those who criticize it. The term double predestination will not be used in this book to refer to election and reprobation since it blurs the distinctions between them and does not give an accurate indication of what is actually being taught. So what terms will be used in the book? Election and reprobation, what will not be used? Double predestination. Now, Sarah's already said, she doesn't quite see the nuance and the difference yet. That's fine. But I want to make sure that we understand that there's a reason why those terms are not being used. Does that make sense? All right. That finally gets us to where we need to go. That's taken us a long time to get us to where we need to go. All right? So we need a definition for the doctrine of election, right? Here we go. We're going to define election. Everybody ready? Election is an act of God. Election is an act of God. Everybody got that? It's an act of God before creation in which I don't lose my voice today. He chooses some people to be saved not on an account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. All right, let's break it down. Everybody ready? All right, here we go. Election number one is what? An act of God. This act of God occurs when? Before creation. In this act, he does what? He chooses some people to be saved. Man, I'm not going to be able to come back this afternoon if my voice keeps going out. All right. He chooses some people to be saved not on account of any foreseen merit in them. All right, now this is significant. What is significant about that phrase right there? Not on account of any foreseen merit in them. All right, he doesn't look down through time and go, oh, look, they choose me, now I'm going to choose them. Because, again, first of all, that just logically doesn't make any sense because who's doing the electing? We would be doing the electing, and God is not our elect. We are God's elect. Right, let's make it very clear. We are God's elect. The scripture is about this. And I, and I have to say this, because people, when they hear sermons on this, it bothers me when people get very upset about this discussion. They get mad. They get upset. I don't know why people get so mad. I didn't write Romans 8. Okay? I just have to say that, because people get so upset about this. I'm like, what do you want me to do? Just skip all of this? I've already shown you how they're all linked together. There's no way to skip this. We're stuck, we're bound by it. Does everybody understand? We have to deal with this. All right? so, so election is what? Now, make it very clear, it's an act of God. If you define election, that God is electing you based off what you do, then election is what? An act of man. Therefore, let me state it again, we could walk around saying, God is my elect, which is horrible horrific, and blasphemous, and, and just, you want to run for your life. Now, people, I'm not saying Arminians say that, but that's what their theology is saying. Their theology is saying, no, I chose God. Okay, well, then you elected God. And that's frightening. <laughs> the, the creature elected the creator. Does everyone see how utterly ridiculous that is? Doesn't work that way. All right, So election is an act of God. When does it occur? Before creation. And what does he do? Choose some people to be saved. And he does so based off what? Not on an account of any foreseen merit, but only because of what? His sovereign good pleasure. All right, so let's go through this again. What is election? What is election? Act of God. God. Okay, before creation, in which God does what? Choose some to be saved. Not according to any merit, foreseen merit in them, but according to what? his sovereign good pleasure. I want you to have that definition like ingrained in your brain, okay? Like I almost want to just stop right here and just say that's it. I just want cuz I just want you to have that definition. I want you to know that definition because anytime you get into a dispute, then they get it. Look, go to Romans chapter 8. Go to Romans chapter 8 really quick. All right? Find the verse where we, we have God's the idea of elect being mentioned? Okay, hey, Romans 8.33, right? Everybody there? I'm gonna read it. Romans 8.33. Got to turn there. Romans 8.33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Please note: the elect belong to whom? God. It shows ownership, correct? Yes. We belong to God. So I want to make it very clear. When someone wants to start arguing, with you like, I don't believe that election stuff. How can you not believe in the election stuff? It's right there. If we are God's elect, then what had to occur? An election. An act of God. If I, because it says God's elect. Demonstrating that the elect belong to God. God is the one who did the electing. So, you can't create a theology that then plays the electing being done by man. So, like, I don't even know why there's an argument here. I don't know how there's a dispute. I don't know why people get upset. This is what they typically do. What about this? What about this? No, no, no. You deal with the text. right? That's the oldest debate technique in the world. When you're getting beat, you change the subject. Don't let them change. you like, no, 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 no. We're going to deal with the word here. Does that say God's elect? Yes. That demonstrates that the elect belong to whom? God. That would demonstrate who did the electing? God. You give me a theology that accounts for that. You give me your definition of election. Their definition of election. Let's, let's, be, let's try to create a definition of election that most people outside of this church or outside of a reformed church would hold to. How would they define election? Let's 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 use that the template of Grudem's definition and let's rewrite it. According to many people who are not Reformed, what would they define it as? Election is an act of man, right? That occurs after creation. No, let's even make it better. That that occurs after my birth, in which I choose God according to my sovereign good pleasure am I being fair they wouldn't want to say it that way but am I being fair do they believe election is an act of God obviously not because who does the electing I do, All right? So when does it occur? can occur before creation because it has to occur after I'm born, right? So it's an act of man that occurs after I'm born. Well, even if he knows it, I'm still the one doing the choosing, right? That's their whole point, right? Their whole point is you're doing the choosing on your own. God's not doing anything to make you choose. So it has to be an act of man. When does it occur? After your birth, Right? And what's the purpose of it? I'm choosing God for my salvation. Right? I'm electing God for my salvation. I don't even know how that works, but I'm electing God for my salvation. That's weird. Okay. Right. And then who it's done according to whose will? Mine. So who's sovereign in it? Me. Whose pleasure? Mine. The end. Do you think that's going to go over big? Do you, think, do you think people are going to like hearing that? They're not going to like hearing it, but they have, to re- they have to then write it a different way, correct? And how are they going to write it? I mean, what's your options? If you start changing it too much, you're going to end up being where? It's an act of God done before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not according to any merit in us, right? And if, they, if you think about it, their definition would also include what? I'm choosing God because of my merit of believing. I mean, I don't even know how they would have been put that. I don't even know what they would do with that section. It'd It'd be crazy. Right? So everybody see that? So what's the definition of election again? I want to make sure everyone has this down. See if you can do it without even looking at your notes. It's an act of God. Before creation, choosing some for salvation... Not based on anything in them, but according to his sovereign good pleasure. Everybody got that down? I mean, I want you to be experts on that. Experts on that. Now, let's do something. It says God's elect in Romans 8.33, correct? God's elect. Look up elect on the Blue Letter Bible app if you have it. Let's just go ahead and do this really quick. I was going to wait and do this later, but let's just do it now. All right. Okay, let's go to New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 33. I'm going to pull up the interlinear. Elect. Okay, we, we already looked at the... Okay, hang on. I'm playing a, a sermon here. Okay, all right. all right. There we go. Here we go. We, have, we already did this once. We'll do it one more time. The Greek word is? Strong's G, 1588, eklektos. 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 What does it mean? Elect or chosen. It's used how many times? 23. The outline of biblical usage is what? Picked out, chosen. What's the next one? Chosen by whom? By God chosen by God. Everybody see that? Okay? We see the the meaning of the word means to be chosen. Who did the choosing? God. It has to be an act of God. Does everyone the meaning of the word demands it's an act of God. Does everybody understand that? Right? Everybody got any any questions about electos? Everybody got it? Okay, now, let's go back to Grudem. Everybody good? All right. There have, now, this is what Grudem says. There has been much controversy in the church and much misunderstanding over the doctrine. Now, let me ask you, why do you think there's been so much controversy? Why do you think there's been so much controversy? Do you think the, the controversy arises from a fair attempt to understand Romans chapter 8 in these six words? I don't think these six words are complicated. Look, there, has there been some complicated things in Romans? Oh, man, there's some stuff we still haven't completely figured out, right? This, to me, is not complicated. Now, now sometimes a pastor can say that and they're not being honest with the text. I'm trying to be honest with the text. Again, it would be complicated if we took these six words from six different places and brought them together. But Romans brings them together for you and then links them together. So therefore, that should uh, alleviate the problem. Here, here I want to state it again. Uh, and I, well, when I say state it again, I haven't stated it today, but I stated it, I think, yesterday in a podcast. Uh, this is such an important principle. I want you to write this principle down. All right, you ready? The best test of your spirituality, of your spiritual maturity, of your spiritual growth, is how you react to a scripture that goes against your thoughts, your feelings, and your desires. The greatest test to your spiritual maturity, your spiritual growth, Your spirituality is how you react to a scripture that goes against what three things? What three things? Your thoughts, your feelings, and your desires. What's the greatest test to your spirituality? It's how you react to scripture that goes against what three things? What are the three things? Your thoughts, your desires, okay? Your thoughts, your desires, and your feelings. Does everybody understand that? Let me give you an example. We go to the Sermon on the Mount. What do we find in the Sermon on the Mount that a lot of people have trouble with? Love your enemy, turn the other cheek. Resist not evil. Bless them that would persecute you and use you. Does everybody like that? Nobody wants to be... uh, uh, Nobody likes that, right? So what do we do with the verse? Well, 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 well. It doesn't really mean turn the actual cheek. It doesn't mean to not resist evil. We come up with all kinds of excuses, right? Because we don't like it. Just because we don't like it doesn't mean we change it. It means we have to deal with it. When you get emotional and you get upset when you hear a verse that you don't like, that says more about you than it does the verse. When you find yourself trying to go wait, 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 it's like taking the Bible like it's a play doh and you're you're you're, you know you're breaking it off and you're bending it and you're you're like there you go, there you go, this is what it means. And you're like, well, what you say it means doesn't seem to have anything to do with the word, the verse, the context, the doctrine, the theology. Guess what happens? That demonstrates a lack of spirituality in your part. And let's be clear, look, does the Bible condemn behavior you're, you haven't been engaged in at some point in your life, maybe even as, as recently as today? Yes. Now you have a couple of choices, right? Acknowledge that you have sinned, try your best to repent and move forward or try to excuse your behavior and say it doesn't really mean that. And we've watched we're we watch that happen all the time in Christianity. We get mad, we get mad if someone who's a homosexual says, "I don't believe the Bible condemns homosexuality." We're like, "How dare you?" But we turn around and find our own way of trying to get around scriptures we don't like. Everyone plays the game. And you can't do that. We saw that with Romans 13. Yesterday I did an hour and 20 minutes where I reviewed uh, MacArthur's commentary that he wrote in 1994 on Romans 13. Guess what? His commentary that he wrote in 1994 is not the same MacArthur in 2021. What changed? Scripture didn't. But now he was confronted with things he didn't like. He was confronted with the government doing and saying things he didn't like. So what did MacArthur's church decide to do? They, they decided we're not going to follow the rules that California gave. We're not going to follow the rules. And then when he got sick with COVID, he straight up they lied to the church and told him he was out resting, preparing for the shepherd's conference. No, he had COVID. And his wife had COVID, and people in the church had COVID. And they covered it up. And they were supposed to report it, and they didn't report it. Now, wait a minute. What happened? Because if you read his commentary in Romans 13, he says there are no exceptions. That when it doesn't matter how messed up the government is other than if they force you to do something that is sinful. Right? He was very specific. What changed? The scriptures didn't change. Circumstances changed. Well, guess what? The circumstances changed, and now Romans 13 was going to go against what? What he was thinking, what he was feeling, and what he was desiring. So what did he do? Change. That's, that's not, we're, we're, look, and I'll make it very clear. I'm not just picking on MacArthur. We've all done it. Everyone in this room has done it. Everyone listening online has done it. Everyone listening online, your church has done it. You've done it. Your wife has done it. Everyone's done it. The, the, the hardest part of being a Christian is finding Scripture that you don't like. And if you're honest with yourself, pretty much all Scripture we don't like. Yes? Because God's ways, not our ways. God's thoughts, not our thoughts. Are we going to constantly find ourselves in conflict with it? We have to just choose what we want to do. What do some people do? I'll oh, forget it. I'm done with Christianity. I'm just going to go do what I want to do. Well, that's wonderful. But if God is real, you're going to end up facing the author anyway. So that's kind of a. Uh, you better prove Christianity is not real before you abandon it. Okay, or I just got to go, man, ugh. This keeps condemning me over and over and over. And you know what? The Bible condemns me over and over and over and over and over and over and over. Every day, I'm constantly reminded of how many th- things I have done wrong and how many times I have messed up. And at times, it's exhausting and it's frustrating. And at times, I wish that I wasn't even a Christian so I didn't have to feel that guilt. But that, that's not the option, correct? That's, that's not an option. All right, well, we're going to run out of time. So, again, what's the greatest test to your spirituality and your spiritual growth and your spiritual maturity? It's how you react to scripture that goes against what three things? Thoughts, feelings, and desires. I cannot stress that enough. Oh, that is such an important principle. Such an important principle. Such an important principle. All right? Okay, so here we go. Um, there have been much controversy in the church and much misunderstanding over this doctrine. Many of the controversial questions regarding man's will and responsibility reg- and regarding the justice of God with respect to human choice um, have been discussed at some length in connection with God's providence, which we talked about. Remember, how did we start our discussion about the six words? And, isn't that interesting? Why did I do that? Because I knew God's providence answers all the questions. If you understand God's providence, election's not even an issue. Right? It's not even an issue. And it's it's weird how Christians sometimes want to believe in God's providence and then the next minute not believe in God's providence. If God if when we say God's providence, what do we mean by God's providence? Y'all should all have the definition written in your notes. Because we covered it for like six weeks. Someone give me a simple definition of God's providence. Okay. The book of Sarah is being opened. Okay, Preserving and governing everything in the universe. Determining everything that takes place. He works all things to what? His goodwill, his pleasure. Now, the minute you say that, the doctrine of election is not controversial, is it? It's amazing, like we're well, like, God is in charge, but not of election. Okay. God is in charge, but not of salvation. Well then why can God be in charge of only some things? That's not being sovereign, is it? All right? So I, I just, yeah, once you went that we have to what once you discuss the doctrine of God's providence, it's over. It's like, I don't even understand there's a reason to discuss it. And remember, Romans 8, the problem started way before the six words, remember? He subjected the whole world to vanity, not according to the will of the creation. Remember that? That should have been enough to go, okay, I like, that, that solves the problem. If he can subject the whole world to vanity without its will, then he can do whatever he wants. And everybody should say, amen. Does he not always do what he wants? Yes. He does whatever he wants. We've been uh, in the Bible study exercises that we've been working on. We're in First Kings chapter 19. And to, this morning I went back to kind of build a, a, a bridge, a, a textual bridge to get us to this week's study. And in First Kings 19, First Kings 18, you have Ahab, who's the has been the most evil king of all the kings that's come before him. He's done all these crazy things. And after even after all the miracle, the fire coming down from, from the heavens and everything that takes place, Ahab and Jezebel still wants Elijah dead. Well, Elijah gets upset. He goes, sits under a juniper tree, and he wants to die, right? And the juniper tree, it's all symbolism. But okay, we won't get into all of that. But then right after he fixes Elijah, he finally gets him, you know, ready to go, he's like, Elijah, I want you to get up, and I want you to go to Damascus, because you're going to anoint Haziel, king over Syria, and then you're going to go find Jehu, and you're going to anoint him, king over Israel, and when you read the text, you're like, well, wait a minute, that demonstrates what? God's in charge of the people in charge, God's in control of the people in control, So then I'm reading the text, well, wait a minute. Why didn't you just replace Ahab earlier? Because he's just not like, hey, you're going to go anoint these people to be kings. And if God's sending you to anoint those people to be kings, what do you know is going to happen? They will become kings. So he could have already replaced Ahab. Demonstrating who's in charge? God. Now, like the Bible, over and over and over, demonstrates God is in is in control. We just don't like it. Like, does anybody love the story of you know uh, Jacob and Esau? Jacob, I have. Esau, I have. Before they even did anything, what in the world is that all about? Because once you read about their lives, Jacob is pretty much a dumpster fire of a person, right? Yeah, so you get the idea. All right, um, this is going to be the approach according to Grudem. Our approach in this chapter will be firstly simply to cite a number of passages from the New Testament that discuss election. Then we will attempt to understand the purpose of God that the New Testament author sees in the doctrine of election. Finally, we will attempt to clarify our understanding of the doctrine and answer some objections and to consider the doctrine of reprobation. So basically, what are we going to do? We're going to look at scriptures that talk about the doctrine of election. All right, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to start it now because if we start, we won't get very far. So here's what we're going to do. For anyone who's listening, if they want to go ahead and start working on this this week, find every verse in the New Testament about the doctrine of election. Find everyone you can find, right? Anyone that says God chose, God elected, anything that you can find. And have them ready to go, because most likely we're going to be covering them this next week. This next Sunday, I should say. Now, why would we want to do that? Why why is that so important? Well, because it demonstrates that election is not just something made up in Romans 8. It's going to demonstrate that the idea of election is found where? Where? Throughout the Bible, but clearly throughout the New—I mean—and the Old Testament, where, where's the focus on election? Israel, he chose Israel. Did he choose Israel because they were better? <laughs> no, no. Why did he choose them? And don't say they chose him because that's just garbage. They did not. God chose them, right? Hey Abraham, Abram, come here. You're going here. You're going to do this. Well, wait, what? What? What's going on? I'm going to make a nation out of you. Oh wait, what? What? Really? How? how How's this going to go down? Okay, wait. What? And then Abraham's like, "I'll help you." No, that's not the way it's going to go. When God was ready, he had Isaac. Yes, God is the one who was in charge. Was God in charge of that entire situation? Okay, who said no? Okay, that's bad theology. <laughs> that's bad theology, Levi. Very bad theology, okay? Bad theology. We need to get you some different parents quickly, okay? <laughs> right? No, that's just a child saying no because that's that's built into them, right? So that's a, de- a demonstration of vipers and diapers, even though he's out of diapers now, but he's still a viper, okay, right? Right? It's depravity, right? No. We, we all say no in different ways. Just as adults, we find different ways to say no, right? We become more sophisticated. All right. Any questions about that? So, what's the uh, definition of election? Act of God, before creation, shows them to be saved, not based any merit in them, but based on his sovereign good pleasure. Everybody got that? What's the number one test to determine your spirituality and your spiritual growth? How you react to scriptures that go against what three things? Your thoughts, feelings, and desires. what sometimes happens is when it's preached, we get mad at the preacher, but in reality, we're really mad at what? The scripture. You got to deal with that. Stop putting the blame on everyone else, right? That happened to Moses. Everybody got mad at Moses. Was it Moses leading them? God leading Moses, right? So who were they really mad at? God's directions. But they took it out on Moses, because that seems the most spiritual thing to do. All right? Everybody got that? And what's going to be our approach this coming uh, Sunday? We're going to just start looking at all the scriptures that talk about the doctrine of election. So what can you do now? You can just start finding all of them and start just having a list. Have a list ready to go. If you And why do I want you to have your list? Well, because if Grudem doesn't mention one, and you do... Because I want you to look at it and go, wait a minute, I, this one is the one that I need help on. Then we can, I can help you so that you have a better understanding. Does that make sense? Because you may find a verse on election that I'm like, whoa, I never even thought about that one. That's interesting. Right, and then, then we can work through it. That, that makes sure we have a good understanding of it. All right? And why do we have to spend so much time on election? It's in Scripture. Well, if you know what's coming after Romans 8, we have to have an understanding of election. Or the rest, 9, 10, and 11, is not even going to make any sense. Because one of the things he's going to discuss is the election of whom? Israel. We've got to understand election, or 9, 10, and 11 is not going to make any sense. Like, people get upset. You just want to preach that Calvinism. No, I, I, I'm not preaching Calvinism. I'm preaching Romans 8. Okay, we gotta deal with it. Forget Calvin. Romans 8 comes before Calvin. Does everybody understand that? All right, okay. I know that may shock some people. Okay. Calvin didn't write Romans 8. Paul did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay. I wish that the doctrine of election wasn't there because then everybody would just not fight. But you know what? Even if the doctrine of election wasn't there, we'd find something else to argue and fight about because we're never gonna be unified on anything. All right. All right, we'll stop right there. Any questions or anything pop up on the computer? Okay. All right, that means I've ticked off everybody and everyone has stopped listening to us and like, that's it, I'm done. They're Calvinists, they're evil. Okay, no, right, forget Calvinism. I don't even like the term Calvinism because it's just a, mis- it's a misrepresentation. Okay, someone say, are you a Calvinist? Say, no, I'm a Romans person. I, I believe in the book of Romans. Okay, that, 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 that there, you accuse me of that. Because again, it's right there. I don't know how you get around it. All right, let's pray. Lord, are we come before you this morning. Lord, this is such an important doctrine, a controversial one. People get very upset. People get very mad. Just, Lord, please just keep us calm, cool, collected, and committed to studying the actual text. And no matter what it says, we go along with it because it's your word, it's not our word, and we can't determine what we want it to say All we can do is submit to what it says. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said,